Welcome to episode 339 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker, author of What, When, Wine, and creator of the supplement line Avalon X. And I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Spina, sports nutrition specialist, author of Keto Essentials, and creator of the Tone Breath Ketone Analyzer and Tone Lux Red Light Therapy Panels. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and ketogenicgirl.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment. To be featured on the show, email us your questions to questions at ifpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. So pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine if it's that time and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste, Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 339 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Vanessa Spina. Hi, everyone. How are you today, Vanessa? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm trying to see... Okay, we're now for listeners, we're at the point where we're recording pretty far in advance. So I'm trying to look at like future us at this time. I have two timely 
related things related to this time. Actually, I will save one of them. Really quick announcement. I think when this comes out, unless things have changed, do you take a vitamin D supplement, Vanessa? I'm supposed to be right now. I do take one right now, but it's not a pure one. It's I take a prenatal by Thorn. Thorn it's called basic nutrients prenatal and it has vitamin D in it. So that's that's what I'm doing, but I also like to get most of my nutrients through food sources. So I like to add cod liver oil, like just drops of cod liver oil and I think that's what a lot of like the drops on the market are actually made of. Well, that's a perfect segue. So they probably are if they don't say that they're vegan or if they're not synthetic. I guess that would be the the alternative for like the vitamin D supplements, right? Right. Yeah. Do you regularly test your vitamin D levels? I'm just curious. I probably should. <laughs> but I I do like when I do a full panel, but I don't like go out of my way to test just vitamin D like more than that, like more than annually. I track mine a lot with Inside Tracker actually. And it was funny. I remember one time I was low. So I was like, I'm going to hit this hard. So I started doing the supplements. I started doing, I know this is controversial, but it was during the winter. So I think I started doing like two minutes in a UVB bed, like every other week or so. And my D levels like shot through the roof. Like it was too high after that. But in any case, hopefully when this comes out, so I actually would love to make a vitamin D supplement because I do take one every single day and have for years. The literature on vitamin D levels is just pretty overwhelmingly positive for the effects on particularly the immune system. And so many people are deficient. So it's on my list of things to make. It's probably going to be a while a ways though, because there are so many other things that I want to be making. And hopefully when this comes out, hopefully we'll be approaching the launch of my spirulina supplement, which is very exciting. But in any case, I'm excited. I personally take a liquid form right now. So that's the form I want to make. But MD Logic is making a capsule form that, sh- again, I think should have just launched. But I'm really excited about that because, A, I know a lot of people do prefer capsules. So that's a great avenue for that. And then it really is, if you take capsules, it's going to be the best form on the market. So it's and speaking to your what you just said about the source, it's vitamin D3 from lichen. So it's, quote, real. It's not synthetic, but it's vegan, which is super cool. It comes with K2 and K4, which are really necessary cofactors or important cofactors for vitamin D, and they have their own array of benefits. So I'm excited because I just feel like this is going to be the best vitamin D capsule supplement on the market. comes in a glass bottle, of course, tested for purity and potency, no problematic fillers. I think they're using a, I think they're using an olive oil or a vitamin E as the carrier. I'll have to double check that. But regardless, they should be having a launch special. And I think hopefully friends are on my email list and following my updates and my text updates. For that, it's avalonx.com. US slash email list text updates. You text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. So hopefully this hasn't changed. I think the code sunshine15 will get you 15% off one bottle or 
the subscriptions are going to be 25% off and that's just during the launch period. I will make a link for that to go directly to it because it's on MD Logic's site. So for that, it will be melanieavalon.com slash vitamin D. So yes, I just wanted to announce that. I'm very excited about that. I have two other quick things, but anything from you? How are things with you? Good, good. I was just going to say that I like to get a lot of vitamin D from the sun. And right now we're having an extended summer which I was hoping for. You were, oh, this is how we're different. You were hoping for, I'm like dying. Yeah, because we had about two to three weeks in at the end of July, first week of August that were like fall here. It was like rainy and cold and it's just not fun when you have a two-year-old and you want to like go do stuff outside. So I just was like, we were robbed. (laughs) We were robbed of summer. So I was really hoping, and we often do get in Prague like, a an extended summer into September. Right now, it's like every single day is sunny and beautiful for the next two weeks. And then we're going back to our favorite place in Greece. So I'm going to be getting a ton of vitamin D, <laughs> continuing to get a ton of vitamin D. But I do use an app that's really great for... D-Minder? Yeah, I've been using D-Minder for years, and I use a new one, which is a circadian one that's great for also knowing like the different windows of light for morning light, like UVA light is earlier versus like the later light when you're actually getting vitamin D. But we happen to live in a place in Prague that does not get vitamin D for most of the winter, so I try to really (laughs) get as much as possible spring, summer and into the late summer because we just don't get access to it at all. The angle of the sun is too low in the winter. So soaking it all in right now. And I I can't wait to get back to the beach. I'm so excited to be back at our, our favorite resort and just be on the beach with Luca, enjoying our last little holiday just as a family of three, (laughs) because there's only a few months before we're going to be a family of four. So it's really crazy. Wow. I'm so excited for you. I'm also thinking about the experience of being pregnant on the beach and I really can't think of anything I'd rather like not be doing. Oh my goodness. It makes me so happy though. Why? Well, the beach already, not so much a fan. Not a big beach girl. Not a big, I, I, yeah. It's like my favorite place in the world. It's hot. There's a lot of wind. There's a lot of, you're like in the elements. Yeah, you're in nature and you're like grounding. Okay, this may be an area where we're very different. You're grounding on the beach, you're barefoot on the earth, you're getting all those negative ions, you're getting rid of excess positive charge and it's like multiplied because you have the salt water, which you can walk into and you can swim in the sea and you got the sun, like it's just such a healthy (laughs) combination. And yeah, it's nature. Nature is the best, right? (laughs) The beach does have going for it that there's no grass. That's really nice. Yeah. It's just sand. I guess if it wasn't so hot. See, I've always loved the beach. I mean, you can stay in the shade, you know, have like a beach, you know, umbrella, which we always have and and stay shady or you can go in the water to cool off. But it's got to be one of my my favorite things. Like I been trying to formulate a plan for years to move us 
full time to a beach location. We're like obsessed with the the thought of doing that. We're trying to find a way to make it manifest at some point. But it's yeah, it's my favorite place. I, I can't wait. So when you have a kid too, it's even better because the beach is just a giant playground. So like all day you can just like do sandcastles and like do all this fun stuff in the sand and it's it's so much fun. Like it's just it's the best. So yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited. I did used to love it. Okay. Growing up. And I mean, I used to like go to the pool and lay out there, you know, like slather myself in like coconut oil and yeah. Are you more of an indoor person now or? Mm-hmm. It's a good time. <laughs> At least you have red light therapy panels. I know. I know. Cryo and all that stuff to kind of duplicate nature. Yes. That's honestly the point. Yep. Did you know finding this out has to do with my third podcast coming out that I'm very excited about? Teaser. Oh, I wonder if that'll be out by the time this comes out. Regardless, did you know there's a lake that is pink? I didn't. I know. I went to a place in the Bahamas that is known for having pink sand, which was an absolute dream. And there's like wild horses running on the pink sand. It's absolutely amazing. Called Harbor Island in the Bahamas. But I hadn't heard of the pink lake. Oh, wow. That is beautiful. Yeah. Just Google Pink Lake. It'll come up. It's called, the one I was looking at was Lake Hillier, H-I-L-L-I-E-R. But the thing that haunts me about it is they said they don't know why it's pink. I was going to say, it sounds like sketchy. (laughs) Like, why is that? Yes. And then the crazier thing is they said the water, if you put it in a bottle, is still pink. Okay. That that does not look natural. (laughs) I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Middle Island. In the Goldfields Esperance region in Western Australia, that looks like a tailings pond or something from a mine. Like that does not look, that does not look good <laughs> or natural at all. <laughs> it could be from, because Western Australia has a lot of mines, like a lot of them. And a lot of them have tailings, tailings ponds where they, they deal with the the waste. So it could be from like the chemicals of that or something. I'm, I wonder it's really close to the ocean. Though. I know maybe it's just the aliens. It's it. Yeah. That just not. Okay. So it says it's a, it's because of the presence of salt tolerant algae that produces carotenoids. Hmm. Oh, so it could be like a vitamin drink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. We could, we could start a brand here. <laughs> <laughs> Like pink water. That would be a thing. That would be a thing. Axanthin is getting more and more attention to. Apparently, it's got a lot of health benefits. But yeah, that's really interesting. Wow. So yes, pink lakes. One other last thing before we jump in for listeners. We are going to be bringing Walter Longo onto the show, which I'm very excited about. I've had him on, I've had him on the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast and I've had him on, he was on this show years ago. Jen and I actually had him on. So he's the founder of Prolon and he's the scientist behind the fasting mimicking diet. He He's a researcher at USC. I think he's the head of their, um, like their longevity school. He's a renowned scientist in the fasting and anti-aging longevity sphere. So 
I am very excited to have him on this show. And so if listeners have questions for him, anything about fasting, fasting, mimicking diet, longevity, definitely submit those questions. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited because they reached out because Perlon wanted to sponsor. And I was like, I don't know that that's the best fit because I, I don't personally do Perlon and you know Vanessa doesn't. I don't think any of the hosts on this show have. However, I do think I tried it and it was too hard for me. I do think it has um, a lot of benefits though. But so when they said that, I was like, well, Walter can come on and talk about it. So I'm very, very much excited about that. Alrighty. Anything from you or shall we jump into things? I can't wait to get into some of these questions. Perfect. Would you like to read the first question? Yes. So Patty from Facebook asked, what are your thoughts on high cortisol and extended fasts? I was told that high cortisol people should only fast 12 to 13 hours from a reliable source. All right, Patty. So thank you so much for your question. Okay. So I sort of took a two-pronged approach to this because you ask about extended fasts, but then you mention people fasting for 12 to 13 hours. So I wanted to include intermittent fasting as well, because it sounds like you're also curious about people who are fasting, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours. So I wanted to address it from both points is the point. So I did a deep dive into the literature, wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. And the results are all over the place. It's like a hot mess. If ever there was, oh, I got so excited. Sorry, Sorry, not to go on a Peter Atiyah tangent, but I am now 25% of the way through his book. Vanessa, I swear, this I know I said this last time, but this book, like I just, it, it takes a long time to read, a very long time to read. He used the phrase hot mess to refer to, he was talking about LP Little A, which I recently went on a tangent. Are you familiar with LP Little A? Yes, I studied it in biochem, but... Just as a quick disclaimer, or, or just as a quick PSA for people, and I am so sorry for the tangent, I um, recently interviewed Dr. Joel Kahn, who is a very renowned cardiologist, very big in the vegan sphere, and his book, his newest book, is about LP little a, and it is blowing my mind. I don't know why we're not testing more for this. It's basically a, if you are genetically disposed to having a variant that makes you produce high LP little a, which is essentially, there's just so much terminology behind this. It's essentially a a marker related to LDL that independent of LDL levels, independent of your cholesterol panel, independent of everything else is a very high predictor of heart disease. And if you have a genetic tendency towards it, basically you're very inclined to probably get heart disease and dietary and exercise interventions don't really affect LP little a. So it's like a whole thing, but you can test for it and you only have to test for it once because it is genetic. So when your test comes back, basically it's probably either going to be like non-existent or very, very low, or it's probably going to be high. So that's something that you can test for. But Peter was talking about it. He said this hot mess of a lipoprotein it made me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm noticing that more and more in books that people are using or interspersing like highly technical terminology with highly casual terminology like that. And it, it's, I don't know what, yeah. How do you feel? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's fun. It's fine. It's like, you know, you want 
to hear the book and the author's voice. And, you know, I think it, you should interject personality if you have one. <laughs> it should be in there. It's probably something I struggle with when I write because I'm like, I have to be so serious, you know. But yeah, I think it's great if you get to a point where you can be like lighthearted. And one of my favorite writers actually is Jason Fung when it comes to like health writing, like scientific writing, because he breaks things down really well, but he's super snarky and it, it just makes it really fun to read. And he's snarky about the things that we all should be snarky about. Like, yeah, I just, I think he's a, he's, he's really, yeah, he's cheeky and it's, it makes it way more fun to read. I feel like I write that way. Like I put in little quips for sure. Other side note that I did want to mention that I don't think it had published since last, I think last time I recorded, it had not come out yet, which was the Newsweek piece actually published. And that was my first. Oh, congrats. Thank you. That was my first like written piece. Oh, cool. In a very credible publication source. So I actually thought of you though. Well, I think of you all the time, (laughs) but I also thought of you specifically because when they were asking for the before and after photos, and I was thinking about how, when I read your book and you had your before and after photos, and I remember you talking in your book about how even when you weighed more, it wasn't quite as noticeable as noticeable because of your you know tall frame and the way you carried it. And I was wondering if, because the experience I went through, because they were asking for before and after photos, like the experience I went through was like what photos to pick and bracing myself for feedback or backlash about, you know, I thought people would be like, I'm either like not overweight enough in the before picture or like, or not thin enough or too thin or like, I'm just really intrigued by people's response to judging people, especially when it comes to something like before and after photos. Did you have any of that experience when you were picking yours out? Like, I was wondering if people would either be like, you look like the same person or if they'd be like, you don't look the same at all. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that I know the one that I used in my book, I don't really feel like I looked that heavy before and people are used to seeing like more dramatic transformations. But I do really try to explain like that. I happen to be one of those people who I'm very concerned about who don't show as much on the outside, like skinny fat or toe, like thin on the outside fat on the inside, because I was 38% body fat, which is like quite obese. It was definitely considered at least obese. I think the cutoff for morbidly obese, I'm not sure. It's it's definitely higher than that. Like I wouldn't say I was morbidly obese, but there's a lot of people walking around like me who just don't feel good in their body and they're told that they look fine, and which is what kept happening to me. And that's why I always, you know, rail against using the scale because like the BMI index is so outdated And when I finally had my body composition scan done, which shouldn't have been something I had to go out and seek on my own, it should be something that is just an annual or every other year thing that we do as a part of our medical routines, right? Because we get our bone density assessed and same machine. So just like scan your body composition while you're there, see how your muscle mass is trending. But when I saw that I was that high, everything made sense. And so I do try to talk about that specifically for people who 
like just don't feel good in their body. They don't know why, but they carry their weight okay because they have like like height or whatnot. And then, you know, getting a scan done, I think can really help because those people are at risk. Like I was of just like continuously like getting worse (laughs) metabolically and yet maybe not like questioning it so much or thinking that they're fine because on the outside they don't look that heavy. But what astonishes me about body composition is you could see a person that is big, physically large, they could be way more metabolically healthy than someone who looks small because they are like, like mostly muscle, like say their body fat percentage is like 20% because they work out a lot. So their BMI would show that they were unhealthy or over, it would, their BMI would definitely show that they were overweight, which would be totally false because they're actually metabolically very healthy. And then someone who just like looks has a smaller frame, but is like really under muscled, which I was and over fat. So yeah, (laughs) I understand. And people ask me all the time for, you know, before and after photos, but there's so much as well that you can't tell just from the, the way you look on like how you feel on the inside. Right. I am so glad you drew attention to that. It hadn't actually occurred to me to really point it out from that perspective. And actually, interestingly, also, I'll read a quote from from Peter's book. By the way, it's called Outlive. And he says, it's what you just said. He says, well, individual fat storage capacity seems to be influenced by genetic factors. This is a generalization, but people of Asian descent, for example, tend to have a much lower capacity to store fat on average than Caucasians. There are other factors at play as well, but that explains in part why some people can be obese but metabolically healthy, while others can appear skinny while still walking around with three or more markers of metabolic syndrome. It's these people who are most at risk. And then he says, all things being equal, someone who carries a bit of body fat may also have greater fat storage capacity and thus more metabolic leeway than someone who appears to be more lean. And he goes on to more detail. But Oh, and then then he says, this is why I insist my patients undergo a DEXA scan annually, and I am far more interested in their visceral fat than their total body fat. And what's interesting is one of the comments, actually, so most people were overwhelmingly supportive with the before and after photos, and most people actually said that they thought, I don't even look like the same person. Like, a lot of people were like, is that you? I was like, yes, that is me. One person, though, did say, in the same in the same comment, they said something about like they were sure I felt better now, but I looked healthier before. And I was like, I okay, I don't really know what to do with that, and I actually don't think I look healthier before. But just goes to show that people all have their own opinions of everything. But I I agree so much. I think I just think there's a problem with putting everything in a box as to what health would look like. Like we think it would manifest as this certain thing when really metabolic syndrome, so much of it is invisible. The only, out of all the, out of the five metabolic syndrome factors, only one of them presents outwardly, which is obesity, right? Is that correct? Because yeah, blood pressure. Yeah. The other ones you're not going to see on the outside. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 20% off one of the best things you could ever feed your pet. 
I'm also going to tell you how to get free, healthy, delicious, nutritious dog food. So we talk a lot about health on this podcast. And if you're like a lot of our audience, you probably think a lot about the food that you put in your mouth and how it affects your health. And yet, how many of us think about what we're feeding our pets? Honestly, it is shocking, the ingredients in conventional pet food. It's no wonder we see so many of the diseases that humans experience in our dogs and cats. A lot of it goes back to what they're eating. Processed conventional pet food is full of sugar, advanced glycation end products, and a myriad of toxins. So would you like to change that and start feeding your pet healthy, delicious, nutritious food that they will adore and that will support their health? You have got to try Yummers. It was founded by my dear friend, Rebecca Rudish. She's a pet industry expert, and she founded it with celebrity duo, Anthony Porowski and Jonathan Van Ness. Together, they created an incredible company. They have both gourmet mix-ins and functional mix-ins that are flavor-packed and nutrient-rich meal additions that offer an accessible solution to enriching the everyday lives of our pets. So those gourmet and functional mix-ins are a great way to easily upgrade what you're already feeding your pet to help them enjoy the food more and to truly support their health. And friends, I have seen pets respond to yummers. It's kind of crazy. I kept getting texts from my mom and sister talking about just how excited my sister's cat Jackie and my mom's dog Mia were about yummers. Our assistant on the show, Sharon, she sent me a video of her dog Tilly getting excited about yummers. And that dog is freaking out. She is so excited. And I asked Sharon, I was like, does she normally do that? And Sharon was like, no. In other words, pets adore Yummers and it is so nutritious and delicious for them. And I'm super excited because Yummers recently released dog food. And I'm going to tell you how to try it for free. So this is not your average bowl of uniform pellet-like kibble. So each ingredient is actually processed separately from one another to maximize flavor and nutrition value. And Yummers uses premium grade animal proteins, real fruits and veggies, and gently processed whole grains to lock in all of the benefits of raw food while giving pet parents accessibility and ease of mind. It's the difference between feed and food. You can get 20% off your purchase at yummerspets.com slash ifpodcast with the coupon code ifpodcast20. That's yummerspets.com, Y-U-M-M-E-R-S-P-E-T-S.com slash ifpodcast with the coupon code ifpodcast20. And on the site, you can select your favorite recipe of Yummer's new dog food to receive a free sample. Yes, completely free. For that, just go to yummerspets.com slash ifpodcast, and we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, and I also think we live in a world, especially today, where (laughs) certain things are being normalized more and more, like pathogen, like just disease is being normalized, obesity is being normalized. Like I'm sure people have seen those photos of like the store mannequins, the male store mannequins that are like quite large and overweight looking. And it's it's like we live in this society where like these things are are being normalized, I think, in an attempt to protect people's feelings. But it's not it's definitely not advantageous when you understand how much obesity is connected to cardiometabolic risk, to cancer risk, to, you know, Alzheimer's risk, like to so many different, you know, diseases and conditions. I don't know why we're normalizing that, but we don't see as many people who are maybe, you know, on sort of the, the other side of it where you're like a biohacker and you're like, this is, you know, what that looks like. 
if that makes sense. I had this exact conversation the other day while at cryotherapy with somebody. And actually it was with somebody who is overweight and struggling with their weight. It was a really nice conversation because I didn't even, I didn't bring it up. She did. And she felt very strongly about it. And she felt very strongly about what you were just saying, like how it's being normalized. She was struggling with her weight, but she was also expressing the issues with how it's being normalized and um, how there's like pressure to, in a way, not want to change your weight because then it's like you're subscribing to the narrative that you need to be thin, which I just don't, I don't know. It makes me all really uncomfortable that. It makes me uncomfortable too, but I think there's, there's a few things that people really don't talk about enough and I don't talk about it very often either, but you and I were talking about it recently in a podcast and it got me thinking is the fact that I don't ever have pain in my body. <laughs> like I wake up every day and if there's a pain, it's like, what is going on? <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> okay. Like I have to go back through my, my food journal, like the day before, like figure out, you know, did I pull something? Like, it's just so rare for me to have pain in my body. We don't, even have like pain relief, pain relievers like in our home because we just don't ever use them. If I have any kind of pain, I'll tend to use like a, if it's like a a muscle issue or something, I'll use red light therapy, but I don't have pain in my body. Like every day I feel pain-free. I feel amazing in my body every day. I feel energetic in my body every day. And I haven't been sick. Like I could count on one hand the number of times I've been sick in the last like eight years. And I know people who are chronically sick with like colds and flus, like basically for half the year. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I couldn't imagine living like that. But I, I can remember what my life was like before when I was, you know, at 38% body fat. And I remember having this thought where I was like, every day when I wake up, something else hurts. Like I either have a headache today or I have this or I have that. Like every day there was some kind of pain. And when you get into this phase of like practicing like super healthy lifestyle like we do and so many of the, you know, biohacking things that we do for circadian health and alignment, all these things. And you're like, I feel amazing in my body. And this is the way I think a lot of us are supposed to feel. And you don't know the difference until you've experienced not feeling pain and not getting sick. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe like how I was living before in terms of quality of life. You know, we talk so much about appearance, but what about like just the quality of your existence? Like how do you feel every day in your body? Cause it's really hard to go out and conquer the world and follow all your dreams when like you, you feel, you don't feel good. You have no energy, you're sick all the time or you have chronic pain, right? Yeah. Since having an aura ring, the only time I was sick was with COVID. Otherwise, there's not been any fever. Because that was the first time I had a fever. And I was like, oh, this is what it looks like on the aura ring. And I've had the aura ring for over three years. So that means at least in that amount of time, I was only sick with COVID. The headaches one for me, like I used to get headaches all the time growing up. And I thought, I just thought it was normal. I thought that's just normal. Like you get headaches. I thought that was life. Yeah. And that's something you can't take a before and after photo of. Exactly. So I share my journey, my health journey 
in the article and it's called I'm biohacking my health. The results are incredible. And it's on Newsweek. Ah. Uh, I just found the article and it looks amazing. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. I The only thing I would change is, so it is all my words, but the way it was written was they sent me questions and I like answered all of it and then they kind of put it together. So if I feel like if I had written it from like start to finish, I would have like written it a little bit differently, but it's still all my words. It's very surreal. The best comment I got though, this was the best comment. Somebody DM'd me and she said she used to work for Newsweek. And so she said she just wanted to let me know how like basically big of a deal this was and and congratulations. And I was like, oh my goodness, (laughs) it makes me so happy. I'm really, really honored about that. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. I feel like we totally went off the rails with the question. Oh, I know. I know. Oh my goodness. Okay. Bringing it back. Sorry, buddy. I know. Sorry. And we're back. Cortisol. Fasting. Here we go. So first of all, what does cortisol do? So cortisol is a hormone. It's actually the end product of the HPA axis, which is involved in our stress response. And cortisol's role is really helping us respond to challenges and stressors in our lives. So it does things like enhance our our cardiovascular output, our breathing. It helps us mobilize energy. It helps deliver energy to our brain and our muscles. So it's a good thing. We want it. Of course, people get really nervous about it because there's always this idea that we're overproducing cortisol or that we have too much of it or that it's spiking or at the wrong times. So the speaking of times, the normal rhythm of cortisol, it should be in a 24-hour rhythm, and it actually tends to rise later during sleep, and it peaks in the early morning. So people might have heard of the dawn effect, which is kind of like this spike in cortisol that happens in the early morning. And then it decline, it should decline throughout the day, and then it should be lowest right before you fall asleep, and then rinse and repeat. So eating interestingly enough, can have different effects on cortisol. I did not know this. I was wrong. So eating actually tends to increase cortisol just a little bit. I thought it did the opposite, but it actually, so during the daytime when you eat food, it actually creates a small acute increase in cortisol toward the beginning of the meal that peaks around an hour after starting, and then it starts going down. You can also get an anticipatory cortisol peak. So if you are like about to eat, they've seen in rodents that rodents will have a like a pre-eat, a pre-prandial, which means a pre-eating peak in cortisol. So one of the problems, because there are a lot of studies looking at cortisol and fasting, they're mostly the ones I could find are in, in Ramadan studies. So that's, you know, a religious type of fasting where people are not eating during daylight. And the main issue, and it's almost like this issue is so blinding that I almost don't even feel comfortable. I mean, I can share the results, but I just don't even know what, I don't even know what we can really draw from this. Actually, speaking of, (laughs) I highly recommend Peter Tia has an episode out right now, although by the time this comes out, it will be a while ago. But it's all about how to interpret studies and what all the different studies mean and how they're created. And it's really, really helpful. So I highly recommend listening to that. So back to the problem with cortisol. Cortisol, kind of like when we look at kind of how we talk on this show about how 
wearing a CGM can be so beneficial because you get to see your blood sugar levels all the time and not just in one given moment, a snapshot like that you would with a, a blood finger prick. Cortisol is the same thing. So looking at a snapshot of cortisol, it doesn't tell you what cortisol was doing the rest of the time. It doesn't tell you if that was just a transitory peak for whatever reason. It just doesn't tell you a lot. And then on top of that, half of the studies out there or a lot of the studies out there don't even say when they tested the cortisol. So it's like, we don't even know what to do with that data. And then on top of that, if they're only testing once or a few times, it's not necessarily a very clear picture. So point is, it's sort of hard to know how to even read all these studies. But I did find a nice systemic review that looked at a lot of Ramadan studies and it looked at how it affected cortisol. And just to show you how it's all over the place. So this study was called, it was December, 2020, and it was called The Window Matters, a systemic review of time-restricted eating strategies in relation to cortisol and melatonin secretion. It included 14 studies And in the review, they found that two out of three of the Ramadan papers noted an abolishing of the circadian rhythm of cortisol. So that doesn't sound good. But um, (laughs) going back to what I was just saying about cortisol being a typical 24-hour rhythm. So basically, that rhythm was just off. It was just different on Ramadan. One of the studies found, this is interesting, found increased cortisol levels in the not fasting group. So that's contrary to my what you might think. One of the studies found that if you skipped dinner, it reduced evening cortisol and non-significantly raised morning cortisol. And on the contrary, those who skipped breakfast, so fasting in the morning, had reduced morning cortisol. So that's actually the opposite of the normal axis they concluded that that was a blunting and indicated a dysfunctional HPA axis. The crazy thing is, so I'm going to leave that study for a second. I had gone on a tangent, it was when Cynthia was co-hosting the show, I believe. Dr. Sarah Ballantyne had done an overview of some studies and she had referenced a 2019 study called Early Time Restricted Feeding Improves 24-Hour Glucose Levels and affects markers of the circadian clock, aging, and autophagy in humans. And what was interesting is she talked about how they found that it affected cortisol, and she was saying that that might be a problem for people with cortisol issues. But then what was ironic was if you looked at the study, they actually found that it did, in my opinion, what you would want to happen. So it actually found that early early time-restricted feeding increased cortisol in the morning, and reduced cortisol at night. And so that is in line with the normal circadian cortisol rhythm. So I don't see that as a problem for most people. And then comparing it to what I just read from that other review, it's similar into how they also said that dinner skipping, which would be early time-restricted feeding, also resulted in significantly reduced evening cortisol and non-significantly raised morning cortisol. So basically, when you're fasting, so you can't just apply everything to intermittent fasting without looking at the early versus later versions of it because it might manifest differently. So also in that study that looked at the 14 studies, they found, for example, that one study, cortisol maintained its normal rhythm, but that it had a biphasic pattern. So it was shifted or different 
One of the other studies in the group found that the fasting decreased morning cortisol at the end of Ramadan. And then another one of the studies actually found that it rose cortisol in the fasting group of pregnant women. But the problem with these studies was that neither of them reported the time of the sample collection. So that goes to what I was saying and that you just, it's really hard to draw conclusions when they don't say when they collected it. There's also another study that's been quoted a lot and maybe, maybe it's just because I've seen it a lot, but it actually looked at intermittent fasting and professional firefighters. And it was an eight week intervention with time restricted eating. And they actually found that it reduced their levels of cortisol. The conclusion from that study, they thought that the contradictory effects of intermittent fasting diets on different markers might have to do with the short duration of the studies and that we just need longer studies to see what is actually happening. So again, that one that one was a two-month study, eight weeks. So basically, it would be nice to have longer studies. And then I did go down the rabbit hole of longer fasts because I know Patty was asking about longer fasts. And I really, I really thought I'd be able to find more. Like I thought this was going to be easy. I thought I was going to like type it in and it would be like, here's like 50 studies. That's what I looked into a little bit more was the extended. The ones I found were like very, they weren't actually looking at cortisol specifically. It was just included in the study or some of them sort of were, but it was like different. I'll just tell you what I found. So I found one that was looking at the circadian cortisol concentrations in a 72 hour fast in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, not previously treated with corticosteroids. And that study found, so it was a three-day fast, and they found that overall, the 24-hour free and total cortisol concentrations rose by, so the cortisol rose by 50%. And then another study called Effects of a 48-Hour Fast on Heart Rate Variability and Cortisol Levels in Healthy Female Subjects. So so that was looking at, again, a two-day, yeah, a two-day fast in women. It found that the cortisol profile shifted towards lower values from baseline to the end of the experiment. And they concluded that a total fast induced parasympathetic withdrawal with simultaneous sympathetic activation. In other words, it increased their stress response. And then I found another study, and this was from 1996. So take that with a grain of salt. But the title literally says it in the it literally answers it in the title. It says fasting as a metabolic stress paradigm selectively amplifies cortisol secretory burst mass and delays the time of maximal nyctohemeral cortisol concentrations in healthy men. So they found basically that in fasted men, this went up to a five-day water fast, and they found that the 24-hour cortisol production increased like in bursts by 1.6 fold. So that is interesting. So all of that to say, the takeaway that I had from all of this was A, it's hard to draw conclusions because there's not a lot of good data to go on, but B, in shorter fasts, so intermittent fasting during the day, it seems to be all over the place in people's responses. Like some of the, and it it seems to probably depend on when you're doing your window, but it might have no effect. It might increase cortisol. It might decrease cortisol. It's just 
all over the place. It seems like if you had to pick a window most in line with the normal cortisol pattern, it's probably early time restricted feeding. With the longer fasts, it seems to definitely increase cortisol. At least everything I saw on longer fasts, it did increase. Hi friends. As you guys know, I'm a little bit obsessed with the importance of reducing our exposure to environmental toxins. Did you know there is a hidden culprit that is around us everywhere that the International Agency for Research on Cancer, also known as the IARC, classifies as group 2B carcinogens? This means they are possibly carcinogenic to humans. And while the science is still evolving, multiple studies have linked high levels of this to a range of health issues. I'm talking about EMFs, electromagnetic fields, radiation. EMFs are emitted from so many things today. Our smartphones, our Wi-Fi, our smart devices in our homes. In fact, if you have an iPhone and you go into the legal section, it will actually recommend that you don't use it like a normal phone and hold it to your head and instead use speakerphone to reduce exposure to potentially harmful EMFs. Why does the IARC consider EMFs group to be? That was based in part on increased risk of brain cancer associated with wireless phones. A 2000 analysis of multiple studies showed that children living in homes with very high EMF levels had a slightly increased risk of leukemia. Multiple studies have also found reproductive effects. A 2008 study suggested that using mobile phones may decrease semen quality in men by decreasing sperm count, motility, viability, and morphology. There are also neurological effects. If you get headaches, please stop using the AirPods. Please reduce your EMF exposure. Some studies have speculated that EMFs could influence brain activity and impact sleep and even affect EEG patterns during the awake state. One study found that workers exposed to EMFs showed altered heart rate variability, suggesting an influence on the autonomic nervous system. And a lot of individuals may be particularly sensitive to EMFs and experience headaches, fatigue, stress, and sleep disturbances. That's why I am so excited to be launching a line of EMF blocking products to help protect you. I'm starting with one of the easiest, most profound changes you can take in your daily life, and that is by not using your phone like a normal phone and not wearing AirPods. Friends, take out the AirPods. I shudder. These EMFs literally affect the calcium channels of our cells. You do not want that right by your brain. My Avalon X powered by SYB is going to be an incredible line of EMF blocking products. We're launching with Air 2 tubes. That is EMF-free headphones that you can use with your phone. They have all the normal features of normal headphones, so you can do calls, speak on them, play music, skip ahead, adjust volume, all the things. Well, all the things except EMF exposure. And I am beyond thrilled because we are launching in two of my favorite colors, black and rose gold. Get on my email list so that you don't miss that. That is at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. We'll be doing an amazing launch special so you don't want to miss that. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list so that you don't miss the exclusive discount for my air tubes. They will make incredible gifts for both yourself and others. melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. You can also use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide from my fantastic partner, Shield Your Body. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash shield your body and use the coupon code melanieavalon. They have so many EMF blocking products. So definitely check them out. That was all over the place. And I don't even know how helpful that was, but Vanessa, what did you find? 
<laughs> I'm I'm glad that you covered all of that, especially on the shorter term fasts. A couple of things that I would add is, well, first of all, I would want to ask if you've had your cortisol assessed with like a functional medicine practitioner or someone who specializes in hormonal health. They probably could guide you better on this <laughs> in terms of like actually advising you on, you know, what would be recommended, but just looking at the research out there. So I thought I would also find immediate answers. I did find though one systematic review and meta-analysis where they were looking at the plasma cortisol levels following fasting and also caloric restriction. And there's a few things that kind of stood out for me. The first one that was really interesting is that they noted that cortisol levels went up quite a bit at the beginning, especially with fasting, not so much with caloric restriction. So it's more so with fasting. So, I mean, you could probably consider like a very low calorie diet or low calorie diet, like as, you know, just intraday fasting or time restricted eating, but they found that cortisol really went up with the extended fasting. And, and, you know, that's more like prolonged, the prolonged fasting that you were asking about Patty, but a couple interesting things about that. The first is that it kind of tapers off, like it spikes at the beginning and it seems to level off. The second observation is that some of it is related to perceived stress. So I would say if doing prolonged fasting, if you perceive that to be something very stressful, you're probably going to have higher cortisol levels as a result of that because you're perceiving it as a stressor. And I would think that that's probably something that happens with people who are more beginners at it, whereas people who've been doing extended fasting, like for example, just using myself as an example, I do extended fast a few times a year seasonally and I don't find it stressful. I've been doing it for so many years and I actually look forward to it. <laughs> it's just such a nice break and like reset for me. So kind of dip I would consider myself an advanced faster though. So it depends on where you're at. And some people don't find fasting that easy. And I think that there's definitely ways to, you know, get some of those benefits of autophagy without having to do like a full out fast. Like you could do, you know, more of a keto sort of fast with like MCT oil, coffee and that kind of thing, bone broth, you know, those kinds of like fasting aids, quote unquote fasting aids. Another really interesting thing that they found is that it looks like the cortisol levels go up when salt gets really low. And I think that that's probably why it's very much recommended during extended fasting to supplement with electrolytes, like our favorite element, electrolytes. I always supplement with them on a daily basis because I eat very low carb. And so my body does not retain as much of the electrolytes when those electrolytes are being filtered by the kidneys. So I take them every day, but if I'm doing extended fast, I take a lot of sodium on those days, a lot of element, and I also supplement just with sodium. So I think that that makes a lot of sense because of how, like, the, so what's happening, you know, during the stress or prolonged fasting is that HPA access, as you mentioned, is being like activated as a perceived stressor. Last two things I wanted to say about it is that 
cortisol going up is not always a bad thing. Like for example, our mutual friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, she talks about how her patients, when she gets them on a higher protein diet, all of their markers improve. For some reason, they tend to have slightly higher cortisol, but she doesn't consider it to be a negative. And they tend to also have slightly higher blood glucose on average, but that's because of a lot of different mechanisms because you're now relying more on gluconeogenesis as opposed to stored glycogen. So having higher cortisol, a little bit higher, isn't always necessarily something to fear. And it also is going up because on extended fasting, you are then activating all your act. Well, first you're flipping that metabolic switch. You're going from primarily burning glucose to primarily burning fat and you need cortisol to help, you know, be in that catabolic mode to be breaking down fat stores. So I think that depending on like your goals at the fast, where you're at, you know, if you do have high cortisol levels already that you've had tested and you're working with someone and they've said to avoid stress or avoid anything that raises your cortisol, then prolonged fasting is probably not necessarily a great idea. This meta-analysis did find that it does go up quite a bit with fasting, although it does tend to level off after the initial spike, which I thought was really interesting. And they also seem to have sort of like a mixed conclusion on, on it, but we kind of understand the mechanisms. But they did say that with very low-calorie diets or less intense low-calorie diets, it's not so much an issue. The higher cortisol is not as much of an issue. So it brought up some interesting points. We'll definitely link this in this meta-analysis as well as all the research that you brought up. But the very last thing that I wanted to mention that they talked about in the conclusions is so they acknowledge that they haven't studied the consequences of this, what they refer to as transient hypercortisolemia, because they're saying it's transient. It, it has a spike, but then it levels off. But they actually suggest that this elevated cortisol might mediate some of the adverse effects of caloric restriction in the short term. So they talked about a few different ways that it could help with some of the adverse effects of caloric restriction and also improve fat loss. So again, you know, that cortisol is being mobilized because your body needs to be in that catabolic mode and break down fat. And that's definitely what you are being mostly fueled off during a prolonged fast after you get past like the first one to three days. You know, there's a little bit of protein breakdown there. But once you get past that, you're just purely burning off of fat. So running off of fat. So it is doesn't seem to be super clear, but you know, on an individual basis, I would definitely recommend like consulting with a hormone specialist or your doctor, you know, to look at different strategies. But it does seem like from everything that we've been talking about that those sort of like you mentioned 12 to 13 hour fast or the intraday fasting during the day, some, you know, time restricted feeding doesn't seem to have as much of an effect on the cortisol levels. Thank you for finding that study. That's awesome. I keep, it's like I'm haunted by it. I, I remember that exact sentence in Dr. Gabrielle Lyon's book about the um, the blood sugar levels. I didn't remember that she talked about the cortisol as well. So I'm glad you mentioned that. No, she, she just told me that like on a interview that we did together. I don't know where it, where it would be in the book, but 
I was just asking her specifically about that because people have, you know, get concerned whenever blood glucose goes up, but they don't, she doesn't consider it to be a bad thing. Like it's just something that seems to happen when you're, you're sort of in a different, like sort of metabolism there, right? Like you're running a little bit more off of that gluconeogenesis than off of the, the, uh, the glycogen. That makes sense. Why Why I didn't remember it. She does say, she does mention the blood sugar part in her book. And I was going to ask her about that because I actually don't know how I feel about that. Cause I did experience that when I was like essentially zero carb, my fasting blood sugar was higher. And then when I went switched to bringing back carbs, it was lower. So what's interesting about that, especially the morning blood glucose is when you are high carb or higher carb, your blood glucose tends to be lower because you're running off of the stored glycogen throughout the night. But when you are doing higher protein, lower carb, then because you're running more off the gluconeogenesis, you usually deplete the glycogen throughout the night. And so you start making some glucose in your liver. And that's why the morning glucose readings tend to be higher. What's weird though, either way, it's your liver regulating everything, you know, like it's the liver basically using the glycogen stores or creating its own. So do you think that just when it's creating its own, it tends to favor a higher resting blood sugar rate? I mean, I think that it, it's just the mechanism because it's, it's instead of having it all stored, you're slowly breaking it down. So if you're eating like lots of carbs, you get the glycogen. And so you can just like, you know, run off of that in your various like muscle cells and your various tissues. And you have some obviously like stored in your liver, which you can also kick out. But if you are running out of glycogen and you're having to make it, then it's just going to be a little bit higher. But I can tell you, like I run off a lot of protein, <laughs> Mostly, I really don't eat a lot of carbs. Like my glucose is 70s every day. So when I was doing carnivore, it tended to be more in the 80s. But I think I was just eating more then. So especially like when people first go on carnivore, they're just like, oh my gosh, like all the ribeyes, like give me all the ribeyes, like give me all, all the meat. And, you know, I think also I was like overcompensating for a while for, you know, all the years that I didn't eat protein. And a lot of people have that sort of effect where they'll, they'll eat a lot at the beginning. And then they sort of like go down to about half that after they adjust so I definitely eat like way less than I used to when I first did carnivore. So that could be part of it. But also, also as I talked about before, I closed my eating window pretty early. And that I think makes a big difference. That would make sense, especially with what I read in all those studies. One last point as well about the cortisol and fat burning. I'd, I'd read this a lot before and then I, again, just read it as well in Peter's book. He says cortisol is, is especially potent with a double-edged effect of depleting subcutaneous fat, which is generally beneficial, and replacing it with more harmful visceral fat. I've also heard, though, and I've read this somewhere else. So basically what he's saying there is that cortisol helps you burn fat, the fat that you can like pinch and see, which tends to be relatively metabolically benign and can encourage 
visceral fat storage, like as the hormone itself can do that. But I've also read elsewhere that basically it can go down different pathways. Like basically the, the stress, the, the state that you're in can um, have different effects as to whether or not it's encouraging fat storage or not compared to breaking it down more. I'm trying to remember the, the technicalities of it. It has to do with, I think it's like, is it have to do with, I don't want to say the wrong hormone. <sighs> there was like a lot that went into it. Basically it's complicated <laughs> is the point. Really glad that you made that very practical for her with working with a doctor and, you know, trying to see what's actually going on. People can do a, a Dutch test, which is a 24 hour urine sampling test for cortisol levels. And then they can work with a practitioner to help interpret it. Yeah. And we should mention the link for Element as well. If anyone is wanting to take electrolytes when they're they're fasting. Yes. Thank you. Because they can get it for free. So you can get free electrolytes to try if you go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. And that will get you a free sample pack with any order. We love Element electrolytes around here. I'll also mention that if people want to wear SCGM, a continuous glucose monitor, we love NutriSense. So you can go to NutriSense.io slash ifpodcast. And the coupon code IFPODCAST will get you 30% off. So, yeah. Okay. I <laughs> it was great answering Patty's question. <laughs> Anything from you, Vanessa, before we wrap this up? I know I, I enjoyed the episode and the discussion and all the things. And so happy for you with your Newsweek article. It's really huge and a huge moment. And you should feel so proud of yourself and yeah just congrats on that and i can't wait for the next episode thank you so much that means so much coming from you i really really appreciate it so for listeners you can submit your own questions you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there please feel free to submit questions for walter longo who i will be interviewing i'll also be interviewing dave asprey and i think the other interviews will have happened by now so Questions for Dave or Walter, send them our way. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast. I am Melanie Avalon, and Vanessa is Ketogenic Girl. The show notes for today's episode, which will have a transcript and links to everything that we talked about, those will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 339. Okie dokie. I think that is all the things. Anything from you, Vanessa, before we go? I can't wait for the next one with you. Likewise. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.